Good evening. This year's Dublin Theatre Festival has been, by common consent, the most successful yet. Box office records have been spectacularly broken, and the critical reaction to most of the productions, both of classics and of new plays, has been unusually favourable. There's a genuine feeling of work well done, of a small miracle achieved in on a shoestring budget. But, and it's a very big but, isn't it all a bit of a flash in the pan, a two-week feast in a year of theatrical famine, a well-stocked Christmas shop window filled to bursting point with 12 months' rations? Brendan Smith, the festival director, will have none of this. Here, he claims, is an old and discredited argument. In fact, the festival, he says, has over the years more than justified its existence and deserves well of the profession as a whole and indeed of all who care for the theatre in Ireland. It has brought uh, Irish people and Dubliners particularly uh, into the the theatre, people who have never been inside a theatre before in their lives. Uh, It has attracted outside interest in Irish theatre. It has proved to be, I, I, I know this is somewhat sometimes to our detriment, but it has been a springboard for Irish actors uh, getting work abroad, Irish dramatists having their words displayed and presented ab- abroad. And um, in fact, I would also like to add here that we have made the point in the last five years uh, that uh, we are concerned with the Dublin Theatre Festival being a peak point in a very healthy and thriving Irish theatre. To our mind, the theatre festival is quite pointless if it is just a type of uh, oasis in a, in a desert. Uh, it should be part and parcel and the peak point of a very healthy theatre throughout the year. And that is, that is why I'd like to say that the Dublin Theatre Festival Council were the first people to bring to the notice of the government the need for subsidisation of, the, of theatre throughout the year, not alone at festival time. Well, now, there are a number of things you've said there uh, that I'd like to take up with you. But before saying that, surely there remains this fact that for two weeks, say, in the year, people have a plethora of plays to go to. Nobody can possibly get to them all. There's, there's this vast sort of embarrassment of riches... Nobody who's seriously interested in the theatre can really get to see them. And in fact, what you're, is, it, is there not some truth in the fact that what you're providing is a tourist gimmick? Uh, no. Um, we say that the theatre festival is a cultural and tourist promotion. And um, certainly in, uh, suppose after the second year, I'm stating that in order of priority. It is primarily a cultural promotion and board Fulcher are not at all upset by the fact that tourist promotion is now second consideration. As a matter of, of interest, how many tourists do you bring into the country? It has know? reached the point where we bring in over about over 3,000. It's about 3,200 this year, for example. But that in itself, if you reckon per tourist a spending power of about 55 to 60 pounds, including transportation and and hotels and theatres and whatnot, gives you a very big turnover for the city. And 
represents a very good return on board Falch's backing for the festival. How do you know they're genuinely coming to visit the theatre festival? Are they not taking advantage of some I'm not, job? No, I'm not saying that they're all here primarily for the festival, uh, but the point is that there's a, there's a certain percentage of the figure I've named who do come primarily for the festival. Uh, we know that from correspondence and from the booking forms sent in from abroad. Uh, but the fact remains uh, that it, it's still justifiable as a tourist promotion uh, in that uh, we have this great, if you like, spate of theatrical activity at a particular time of the year, and of course it enhances the value of Dublin as a tourist point. But still, isn't the festival an oasis in a desert, in Brendan Smith's phrase? Not my phrase, says Smith. It's what our old-fashioned critics say, and they're wrong. There are three, I would say, offhand, or even four, uh, periods of intense theatrical activity in Dublin at the moment, uh, and that's represented by very full houses during these periods. Five or six weeks after Christmas, four or five weeks after Easter, the peak point in the tourist season, say, from the middle of June to the middle of September, the, and the period of the Dublin Theatre Festival itself. But surely some of these periods are uh, concerned with what can only be marginally called theatre. I mean, they're concerned with variety, they're concerned with pantomime. And I'm not saying that I don't enjoy pantomime or variety. Yeah. But how far is this really theatre? Well, now, I, 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 look, I may have to take a personal view here, but theatres are places of entertainment first, in my opinion. They are also, and should be, at least for some other time, places of stimulation, artistic stimulation, stimulation of thought, etc. But I'm afraid that it's, it's, it's the height of nonsense, in my opinion, just to, to say that, uh, you know, that, that all, every theatre building in the city must concern itself all the year round with catering for eggheads. Wood is not talking about catering for eggheads. Surely this is falling into, the, into a ridiculous sort of highbrow, lowbrow, dichotomy, which isn't the invention of highbrows, but is in fact the invention of managements. And incidentally, uh, if I may make a very personal remark, isn't there a certain sense in which you, sir, are yourself so c concerned with the management of one theatre that you could hardly be regarded as taking an entirely objective view, either about the festival or about the picture as a whole? Well, uh to give you a case in point, this year <clears throat> with the festival, um, I, of course, must naturally drop out, both in terms of planning or publicity or administration, uh, of any active participation in the running of the Olympia Theatre, uh, where I'm chairman of the leaseholding company at the moment. But for this year's festival, we had a choice of four productions for the two big theatres over the festival period. And uh, I uh, spoke to the booking director in the Gaiety, it was Fred O'Donovan, and I said, these are the four plays that we propose for the Gaiety and the Olympia, unless there be any recrimination afterwards, which two do you want? That's number one. Now, secondly, as far as finances are concerned, uh, there's a standard arrangement, which is known to the council and to our accountants, uh, that in the case of the Olympia, that the Olympia is paid by the uh, council, all their outgoings amounting to some under £850 per week, plus 
a standard profit per week of £150. And in the case of the Gaiety, uh, we this year are paying a rental of £1,500 a week. My heart bleeds. Uh, For whom? <laughs> Still, there is the point, while not suggesting that uh, there is anything venal in mm. your approach to this, mm. uh, still you do in some way represent the management side of the business, don't you? Well, I mean, uh, I must earn a living throughout the year, and I can assure you, if you'd like to ask me what my fee is for the first time, I'd be very happy to tell you. Uh, but well, tell me. Uh, am I, I'm actually on a fee at the moment of £1,100 uh, per year, uh, with £400 expenses, £200 of which has to be vouched. And that is my fee and my arrangement with the festival. Uh, I obviously earn <coughs> a living uh, outside the theatre festival. I have to. And uh, I'm very fond of my creature comforts at the moment. Uh, and um, I'm concerned with the management of the theatre. I'm also concerned as a, an independent impresario producer. In some of these projects, I make money. In others, and uh, this has been the case the last two years, I've lost money. Um, but I'm also involved, of course, with the drama school, which is the largest in Ireland. And we've just celebrated our 25th anniversary this year. Uh, and I'm a little involved in commercial radio. And I think, really, that's uh, on a quite another level. If you'd like to go, say, let's take the position of an actor, a freelance actor in this country. That's how he makes up his living. He works for theatre, he works in films, and he works for radio. Irish actors, freelance and otherwise, have a trade union. It's called Irish Actors' Equity. And the secretary of this union, Dermot Doolan, takes a gloomy view of the whole scene. Frankly, I think the only thing that will wake us all up is if the house-closed notices went on all the theatres and they all closed down for uh, a week or two in order that, that we uh, could uh, air our views and make sure that the people in the right places would realise how serious the, and critical the theatrical situation is. I believe that if we had, um, say, uh, Pres President Johnston here, that he would declare the theatre situation here as a disaster area in need of uh, immediate aid, because uh, I don't think the situation can continue if we're trying to influence um, people abroad that we still are the uh, uh, cradle of genius for the theatre, producing actors and playwrights, um, we've been doing this on a shoestring. And I think our greatest uh, natural resource is in our uh, writers and in our actors. And uh, I think that film festivals are all right, uh, music festivals are all right, but they're really not indigenous to the country. Whereas drama, we have a... A, a tremendous international reputation abroad. Um, the Abbey, no doubt, has hit the high spots once more and must be taken seriously in art form, and therefore we're not really uh, doing enough at home uh, to foster this. But, Whitner, you've said the Abbey is hitting high spots, and we certainly have seen some very interesting work in other theatres over the last few weeks. Why are you taking so gloomy a view? Well, this is uh, the festival, actually, uh, is, is the uh, Cinderella. Uh, this is where she gets the magic wand and goes to the ball. But uh, at 12 o'clock midnight is the, is the famine. And from then on, you have uh, uh, no fairy wand uh, by way of subsidies. 
And as long as you have no subsidies and no support for the theatre, you're going to have uh, this ridiculous Mickey Mousing, as I call it, where um, people are putting on shows uh, with, uh, on a shoestring. Um, they can't be mounted properly. They can't be mounted, uh, they, they can't be rehearsed uh, sufficiently. Uh, the actors are not getting uh, a living wage out of it, uh, £5 a week for rehearsal money. And uh, we tomorrow, uh, as a, a trade union in equity, could straight away uh, demand a living wage for all our actors in the, uh, the uh, theatre here. But what would happen is we close the whole industry, or the small industry. Well, now you've said several mouthfuls there. Um, one thing I'd like to take up with you, first of all, you seem to be talking a little with two voices. You're talking about standards, and you're talking with the culture man's voice. You're also being the trade union official, and you're saying that, uh, in fact, you have actors here on less than living wages. Now, um, which are you mostly interested in? Which do you think you should be interested in? And in fact, if you are a trade union secretary, and if equity is a real trade union and has been in existence for as many years as it has, surely if actors in Ireland are not getting living wages, are not making a living out of the theatre, surely it's equity's fault. Well, uh, you also said a mouthful. And uh, the situation is this, that what is artistically good is economically good. We've always found this uh, in, in relation to the business. And first of all, if you cannot pay a proper living wage to people, how are you going to, to attract the right type of recruits into this business? We are not definitely attracting uh, our recruiting the uh, numbers that we should be recruiting. We are losing them to uh, various other occupations, and this is absolutely wrong. Um, there's no incentive for any graduates of the university to come into this business. How can you uh, uh, promise any kind of a living wage to a person of... Uh, 19, 20, 21. Uh, this is the first problem. Yet still they do come in, don't they? Well, this is uh, absolutely true because um, uh, most actors actually feel uh, that they are uh, quite insane to be in this business. And uh, this is uh, uh, one thing that I would absolutely agree with them because there is uh, no security. They have less security than a building uh, worker. And uh, uh, you ask me then, what is equity doing about it and what can equity do about it? Well, I, I think it's getting to the point where we will have to face up to uh, the facts of life and say that, uh, uh, to, to, to uh, quote a, an oft-repeated phrase, that if an industry cannot pay a living wage, it should close down. And our feeling is that um, unless we declare the place a disaster area, then it's no use continuing, because um, economics are tied up uh, with artistic endeavour. If you haven't got the money, you cannot put on the good shows. And uh, success breeds success. And if you're going on and putting on uh, under her shows, badly mounted shows, and, uh, w w you know, you're, you're back to the beginning. It's, it's useless. And do you think we are doing too many shows that are substandard in these ways? Well, I think that uh, even the festival suffers very much from uh, uh, lack of rehearsals. The uh, Moscow Arts, I think, spend five months rehearsing a play. Uh, with the Abbey schedule, uh, uh, for instance, in its normal period of, of uh, weeks, uh, they most certainly don't spend uh, five weeks doing uh, a play. From what Dermot Doolan has said, the life of the actor or actress is by no means a happy one. Is it that bad? Maureen Toll? 
it's a very rough life, and this uh, sort of attitude people outside the theatre have, that it is a glamorous, a sort of Hollywood thing, you know, uh, all the dressing up and the uh, acclaim one might get, you know, playing good parts. It's, it's all very hard work, and uh, even uh, w when you get a, a, a good break, you know, as, as I have uh, uh, been getting lately, very good breaks and very nice parts, this, you have to really perform after the show as well. And as we've been saying in RTE lately, around the clock job. Well, around the clock indeed, because well, you generally have to um, go home and study your next job, or if you're not studying, you're worrying about it. Now, <laughs> you know the, the, the good remark in Dublin, the traditional remark in Dublin, if by some chance somebody actually does praise somebody for something, there's always the man who will say, but isn't he well paid for it? Oh, yes, yes, there's this attitude. Well, now, that, I'm afraid, does not really apply in Dublin. We, I suppose, at times, you can be well paid compared to the sort of uh, ordinary man on the street salary. But remember, we do not work uh, week in, week out. And sometimes one job has to last three months. Uh, you have to eke out your your salary. We only get five pounds a week rehearsal salary. Uh, it doesn't even pay for your meals in town. Uh, uh, actors are not well paid in this country, really, or anywhere else, unless you're in the big time films, you know. But even going uh, going uh, across to England and doing television, for which you're quite well paid, by the time you paid your fare and come back at weekends to see your family's all right and. Uh, paid your digs in England and at the same time run your home here, there's, n there's nothing left. There's no such thing as saving. The groceries and the shoes have the to be bought too. The groceries and the shoes yeah. and the boy's school bag and the school books and uh, you, you really must have a car if you work uh, um, uh, fairly hard. Uh, you, you, well, you feel, you number one, you deserve a car. Number two, with the late nights and that late rehearsals after the show, having to go out to supper with people, you must have a car because otherwise it costs a fortune in taxis. And there's all that, you know? Well, if you, with all these expenses and all that, uh, is there a great pull to work in a, in a company? In a company? Well, I think, I think it's very good uh, to work in a company for a while, but not if it gets you into a rut. I think it's very necessary to uh, get away from the same people and to work with different directors. I think the Abbey Theatre now are, are doing marvellous things, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's about time being the National Theatre, uh, inviting uh, ex-Abbey actors back to play, inviting prominent directors from other countries like Hugh Hunter, this lady from Moscow. I think this is terribly important for actors because they get into this dreadful rush. They, uh, it's a sort of an apathy develops in, within a company. And this is the only danger, I think. Otherwise, I, I think it's marvellous to have uh, permanent companies. I wish there were more. I wish there were two or three more, would say, a nucleus of five or six actors and, and sort of drawing from the rest of the Irish theatre. Neil Tobin has experience both as a member of a company and as a freelance actor. Would he, to paraphrase Noel Coward's famous question to Mrs. Worthington, would he put his son on the stage? Would I put my son on the stage? I don't know whether I would or not. I certainly wouldn't stop him from going on the stage because I think that anybody who goes on the stage, if he feels that he must and has the talent and the good sense to realise within a reasonable time, whether he's going to make a success of it or not, 
should do so, certainly there is nothing more rewarding than to have a success in a part. On the other hand, um, it's very difficult, particularly in Dublin, and after all, Dublin is Ireland as far as the professional theatre is concerned, to have a run of successes which will an allow you to make a decent living, particularly if you have heavy commitments by way of uh, children, wives, houses, uh, even cars, which may be necessary. And um, it, it's very, very difficult for an actor to maintain a decent standard of living on the stage alone in Dublin, no matter how good he is. And in fact, the better he is, it, uh, to some extent, the more difficult it may become as time goes on. Now, I myself am on the open market, so to speak, uh, only about a year and a half, two years. And I have myself been personally very successful financially, uh, also, I think, artistically. But I do have the feeling now and again that, well, all right, you've had, you've had three, four, maybe five fairly good successes artistically. Uh, you've got very good notices, you've played to full houses and so on, but people are bound to get fed up of you if you keep appearing too often. And the problem then is, what are you going to do if you have no further uh, stage commitments, if, if managements get tired of, say, oh, well, you know, he's been on too often, we want somebody new. You turn to television, and here again, the problem of overexposure is one which um, is very common. Uh, radio acting as such is not lucrative, uh, unless you happen to be a member of the rep company, which I was for 14 years, uh, which provided a steady income and eventually drove me through boredom and for other reasons which I prefer not to discuss now, uh, into um, going into the wide open spaces. And this is the big dilemma. One goes into the wide open spaces, one gives up the regular income for the greater personal and professional satisfaction of appearing on the stage and being a freelance or a maverick or whatever whatever word you want to use. But to mix metaphors, the well dries up. Ruth O'Mara is a stage manager. It's not exactly an overcrowded profession in Dublin. How does she find the going? There should, in theory, be plenty of work. But in fact, anybody can just come in out of the street without any experience or any training and get a job as a stage manager. And this, I think, equity should stop. Well, now, other recognised scales of pay and so forth, there is no such thing, I suppose, as a recognised apprenticeship system or anything of that nature? No, there isn't, and I think there very much should be. Uh, as regards salary, that is entirely up to the individual to get as much as they possibly can. Well, now, there would be, of course, a basic difference between 
people who are on a resident staff in a resident theatre as stage managers, between stage managers in that sense and stage managers who just come along for a given show given, done by a given company. Oh, yes, I am talking entirely of freelance stage managers, such as myself. Uh, a resident stage manager, as the Abbey has, it's a different thing. They've obviously agreed terms and uh, so forth before they accepted the position. And that's as, like any other job, they even get two weeks holiday a year. It's, it's not um, at all comparable with the freelance stage manager, which I am. Well, now, how do you see that the position could be improved? Because I take it you regard the position not alone on, as unsatisfactory for yourself, but uh, for the theatre. Oh, very much for the theatre, because, and particularly, indeed, for the actors, because eventually they suffer. If an inexperienced person is stage managing a show, uh, naturally they will make mistakes because they are inexperienced, and therefore the actor suffers. They've got to put up with uh, a curtain falling on their head or a telephone bell not ringing when it should ring. And it's just not fair to the actor. Well, what do you see as a possible line of solution? Well, as I say, there are enough of us with experience to cater for every show that's put on in Dublin. And indeed, I include variety, without having to bring in Sunny pros, amateurs, inexperienced people, purely because they may uh, accept five pounds less a week than I would or anybody else would. But surely you get the protection of your trade union, of equity or whatever. Uh, it can't be all that of a jungle. Theoretically, yes. But in practice, no. Jim Fitzgerald, as a director, feels that the devil came in originally with the actor-manager. He condemns the whole idea of commercial theatre, root and branch. Commercial theatre on the West End or American pattern is so corrupt that it has corroded and finished any idea of what the theatre actually is. The theatre is both an art form and, uh, uh, in a sense, a, a communication form. Now, you can, anyone can stage a spectacle, anyone can stage a circus who's got enough artists trapeze artists or whatever they are. Anyone can do this. This is not what theatre is about. Um, until we decide, which most civilised countries have decided, even the major capitalist countries such as America, have finally realised that theatre as an art cannot exist while the main motive for, for its presentation is profit. So I say that the commercial managements here and these are the ones we're discussing, we're presumably discussing people for whom I have great admiration in one sense, say Phyllis Ryan, Brendan Smith, and the many others, including myself and Gunfrey Quigley and so on, who have, as they say, I quote, ironically, kept theatre alive. Um, all this ha has added up to nothing. We at the moment have no real theatre except a tentative uh, attempt at a theatre in the Abbey. Popular entertainment is something which you are passive, a, pa a passive, uh, you're not, you don't participate. Now that is the difference between art and popular entertainment. Now we have no art, we have no theatre art here, except fragmentary 
in the Abbey, and none at all, I insist none in the commercial theatre, except for the two weeks of the festival. And there, you're damn lucky if you get it. There have been years in which you haven't got it there, because again, naturally, Brandon Smith's need to make sure that the festival doesn't lose too much of its sponsor's money gets in the way of serious work. We must be prepared to take risks. Then the logical outcome of what you are saying is that we would abolish the whole idea of commercial theatre. Not at all. Commercial theatre will exist as long as man exists. Commercial theatre started with the mountebank and the, the bear-baiting pit, and it proceeded on. There is always, there will always be the popular entertainer, the comedian, and God help us, we'd be in a bad way without them. But that is not what we're talking about. And surely it is a fact that commercial managements have for a profit motive, put on plays here and elsewhere, which have been great plays. Are you suggesting that the whole of the theatre, of the serious theatre, of the theatre that you have defined in terms of this real intercommunication between what goes on on the stage and what goes on in the audience, are you suggesting that this should be all handed over to the state? I am, yes. I think it is absolutely necessary for the state to take entire responsibility for this. If the odd accident happens and a commercial management finds a good play or a great play, and this has happened, it's purely accidental. We can't afford to be relying for the education of ourselves and our children on accident. And that is what is happening. At the moment, if we get a great play by a commercial management, bravo, I applaud. But it is damn rare, because they're not looking for great plays. They're not looking for communication. They're looking for money. But, Jim, I would suggest that, in fact, what you're saying is the occasional accident has been the rule rather than the exception. Outside, say, of socialist countries, uh, in general, the plays that have been discovered, the plays that have made the history books, even, the plays which have not alone won great audiences, but won great acclaim, have come from uh, the vision of an impresario who has seen that not alone this is a play worth putting on, but a, out of a, but a play out of which he can make money. What about the great corpus of dramatic literature that exists? Why ha have my children and yours not had the opportunity to see even these great plays, some of which were discovered by commercial managers? I refer to Shakespeare, Goldsmith, Wilde, Shaw, the rest. How many times in the year do our children get the opportunity to see what the tradition of great theatre is? How many times in the year are they given the opportunity to make a comparison? Well, I can say this, that when I was growing up, I did get an opportunity to see these plays, quite a lot of them anyway, when Annie McMaster was in the field. Well, Annie McMaster was not subsidised. Annie McMaster was, in fact, that nasty thing, a commercial actor-manager. Even any current commercial manager will tell you that it is no longer possible to tour plays successfully unless they're pop plays. You cannot do what McMaster could do in the 30s and 40s, as magnificently he did do. You can no longer run a company at the gate, as Lord Longford did. Um, Lord Longford being himself a private sponsor, spending at that time about £3,000 a year to keep a company going and presenting classics continuously. This is simply a matter of economics. It is no longer possible. It was possible once, as Hilton Edwards recalls. In those days, when one was young, 
and uh, one could put on more or less shoestring productions using rather more imagination than cash. There was a possibility that with very great care and very great economy in living, you could just barely get through. But for a long time after we were playing here, uh, we found that uh, really the theatre was not at any time running on an economic basis. As you know, Lord Longford came along at a certain time and bought up some outstanding shares, and uh, he was very generous in keeping the theatre going for some time. But this eventually meant uh, you know, a separation of policies. But uh, then we found, even when we were doing very good business here, as our standards improved and more money was spent on productions and salaries grew higher, that for a long time we were really subsidising the gate ourselves by our sort of, what I might call, extramural activities. McLeamore's books and uh, me doing shows abroad and later on television abroad and McLeamore doing his own shows abroad. And uh, this, this, of course, naturally could not go on. As it now stands at the present moment, it is almost impossible and in the Gate Theatre to play plays of any standard at a profit. It's certainly impossible to put on plays of the old standard. For instance, I cannot afford big Shakespearean casts or casts like The Old Lady Says No or Shakespearean plays or, or experimental plays. And one has to confine oneself to plays with rather small casts. Now, there are many very good plays with small casts, but I don't think enough to give one a, a pick to choose a whole season. And even with these, it's rather like this. If you have a success, you get through with a tiny scrap of profit. If you have a failure, you can lose literally hundreds at the gate here, which means to say that a success cannot pay for one failure. And one, one, would, have to be, uh, one would have to be God to be able to put on consecutive successes. Well, now, apart from the obvious problem of the gate, of the, the obvious problems of the theatre with the small seating capacity, mm -hmm. Apart from this altogether, do you feel that the situation, the overall situation, the overall economic situation, has changed not just in degree but in kind over the last 40 years? Do you feel that there well, are I think new so. kinds of problems? Oh, I think so. And I think to a great extent television uh, has, has, uh, has affected it. Uh, television's affected us in two ways. First of all, it has given the actor a better standard of salary, uh, which he certainly deserves and, uh, and, and, and should have. There's no question about that. Because it, take it in the theatre now, the, 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 the amount of salary an actor gets for rehearsal is, is quite criminal and criminally low. But at, at the same moment, it makes all the difference between profit and loss. For us, we cannot, we cannot um, uh, compete with it. Now, television naturally gives better salaries, and actors, therefore, must be free to take t television jobs here, and even with better salaries still in England, which means it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to keep a company together as a, as a unit any longer. And this affects us tremendously. Secondly, I think television's affected us because it's taken a, a, a certain degree, I won't say the cream of the audience by any means, but it's certain, certainly taken, the, shall we say, the top off the audience. And there are a great many, many people who would normally have come to the theatre who now say, oh, well, it's a wet night, I can't find parking, or I don't want to stagger into town again. I'll put on my slippers and watch the television. And if I don't like television air, and there may, may even be a neighbour set that has the BBC. I know this, of course, is Liz Measure but there we are. But so these, in these two ways, the television has affected both our, our audience attendance to a certain extent, and it has also, in a much, to a much greater extent, affected the, the, the salary scale. I think quite rightly, but I think the actors should get better salaries, but it means that we just cannot compete for the simple reason, although our price, prices have been raised, they may have been raised at the very most doubled over, over the last 20 years.
uh, but uh, the salaries have quadrupled and gone even higher still. And I think that hardly any theatre in the world now can uh, continue without some form of subsidy. I quote, for instance, the bigger theatres, the Berlin Ensemble, the Comédie Française, the Odeon, the, uh, the Stratford Uneven Theatre, the Royal Court Theatre, the Abbey Theatre. And what return does the Abbey give us for its subsidy? Here is the manager, Phil O'Kelly. Well, the first thing that the Abbey gives in return is a permanent company. At the moment, we are the only permanent company in Dublin, and that is quite a, it's quite a costly um, item on the, uh, on the Abbey. Most of our subsidy is spent, of course, in salaries. But because you're cutting against the first law of economics of the theatre, which means that uh, you, when you have a small cast, you're not paying other people. But here, if we have a one-man show on it, it costs us the same as a big cast play. You mean you pay your actors all the year round? We do, yes. How many of them? Um, there's 26 at the moment. Um, but I, I think that this is probably the most important item here, is that the company is permanent, that you've seen it in, in Cherry Orchard. Even Siobhan and Cyril, although they've been away for us a while, have, have given the ensemble player playing with our actors. Now, this would not be possible if we had actors in for short seasons or if the actors changed from by month by month. You said you have 26 actors, but yes. your payroll is, I presume, rather larger than that. Oh, it is. You take at the moment, we have a, a cast of 42 on this week in the Gaiety Theatre. Um, we have, uh, well, a cast of two, fortunately enough, in the um, Peacock, and then we have Cherry Orchard on in the Abbey. So that we do use other people, but you must have the permanent company as your company. Of course, we have um, a very large stage staff, an electrical staff, we have a maintenance staff, we have, we have a wardrobe staff, we have, um, of course, the usual front of house staff and administrative staff. Um, and as you know, one of the, one of the problems about um, the cost is that in business which have a very high labour content, that they are being hit very badly by the rising costs, much more than the place which has a, a small labour content. Well, do you think then your subsidy is adequate? I don't at the moment, but... Um, what is it, by the way? It's £48,000 per annum. But I don't think we should say a subsidy should be such and then work accordingly. I think we should get the subsidy for something we really want to do, not say we have the money, now let's see what we will do with it. And... Um, no, I'd say, unfortunately, apart from the new work we're doing, that, as I said earlier, that the high labour content, our costs are going up for even the, the work that the Abbey did, say, two years ago, cost as much, much more now. But if you're going to do extra work, and uh, we hope to do extra work, um, you need more money for that. What sort of extra work? Well, the first thing uh, is to tour Ireland... Um, we did a good tour last year. We didn't tour so much this year because we were touring abroad. But I think we have a duty. We're not a municipal theatre. We are a national theatre. Therefore, we must tour more in there and Cork, Limerick. We've been in Belfast. We hope to go back there again. Um, that is the first thing for which we... Um, we would also hope to set up some type of a theatre workshop in the Peacock, which would require more money. We have a plan for 
children's theatre, not so much children's theatre as rather bringing school children to the theatre and there giving them the history of the theatre and the Abbey's place in such a history. Uh, by the way, it reminds me of this question of uh, young people getting to the theatre, young people without much money getting to the theatre. Uh, and already I've been talking about the price of seats. You peg the seat price is still quite low. We do. Uh, is it, this deliberate? It is. It is our, our, our belief that, um, that any price we have, any seat we have, whatever it may be priced, should be within the pocket of anybody in the country. Therefore, we have a 12 and 6 top. We also give a reduction of a shilling on the five shilling seats, which is very low, five shillings, but we even reduce it to four shillings for students. Um, we could increase our revenue by putting up our prices, but I don't think we should. Well, now, therefore, it looks as if you would say you have a case for more money to do the things that you want to do. How does this figure of 48,000 compare with what's what uh, theatres in other countries that our subsidised get? Well, um, myself and Tomás McConaughey were on a tour of Germany and we visited 15 different theatres and spoke to the intendantes there. I was speaking to the man in Hamburg and I asked him what his subsidy was. He told me that he had got an increase and it was now one million and a half pounds. So he asked me what my subsidy was and I, trying to make it look bigger, said 500 uh, 500,000 Deutsche Marks. We well, said, no, not your salary. What is your subsidy? <laughs> and what about the men who write the plays for the Irish theatre? Or can one realistically write for the Irish audience? Brian Friel? I think this can be one, uh, one's only uh, concern is writing for an Irish market. I think once you attempt to, do, to write for an English or an American market, uh, first of all, you're going to write badly, and secondly, you're going to cater for no audience at all. I, mean, I feel very strongly about this. I think that uh, an Irishman can write best for an Irish audience, and I have a very strong belief that the more truly you write for an Irish audience, uh, the more intelligible this will be for an audience anywhere in the world. But is it realistic to think of an Irish audience economically? Well, if you mean by that, uh, can you write plays which will go on for six or seven weeks in Dublin, and can you live on this? The answer is no, you can't. But I think that... If you write very truly and very perceptively, I'm not speaking of myself now, but if one writes very truly and perceptively and honestly about uh, Irish people, uh, you then create people who are intelligible and understandable to people in Russia or Sweden or New York or, or wherever. The only way to achieve the universal is by making the particular live. I think this is absolutely true, yeah. Uh, to revert to the economics of the situation, do you think, though, that the uh, rewards in the Irish context alone, uh, give at least even a, a sort of uh, a bread, if not butter? They give, I think they give nothing. Um, uh, if, you write, if you're fairly prolific and, say, write one play every 12 months, which is very good going, uh, the most you can hope for, unless you write, say, Barstool Boy, but in the average play, if you write one play a year, the most you can hope for is a seven-week run, uh, perhaps a radio version on Radio Warren or the BBC, and this will not give you enough to, to keep you in shoe leather. Do you think that the state, or public patronage in general, then should help on this? Because, after all, it takes a playwright a while to be established, and if he's going to work fully professionally, uh, he probably needs support in the early stages anyway. Oh, I think he certainly does. Uh, 
uh, th this is where state aid is needed for not only for the Abbey Theatre but for at least two other theatres where a man uh, can have one play, say, in the Abbey repertory, a new play being done, uh, say, by the Phyllis Ryan Productions or by some other company or by the Gate Theatre Productions, and which means that he will have a small income coming then two or three times a year from two or three different sources. Well, do you, do you see this uh, coming from a general sort of assistance to theatres rather than direct assistance to the playwright in the way of prizes or premiums or what? No, I don't, I'm not in favour of premiums or prizes, but I think that if the theatre is, is uh, flourishing um, by state subsidy in two or three different houses, I think this is the best way to subsidise the playwright. But is there a genuine community, a genuine theatre community to write in and for? Here's Eugene McCabe, if you can hear him. I think that's growing. I think the, Ab the Abbey is on the up and up. Um, I was in Glasgow for uh, six months. I sat through one of the finest productions of The Tempest that have been done in Britain, and there were 20 people in a theatre that holds a thousand. I think this couldn't have happened in Dublin. And I have been listening for so long to this whole business of the theatre being dead in Dublin and, you know, the Dublin Theatre Festival being uh, lipstick on a painted corpse, that when I went to Glasgow and I saw in this enormously wealthy, clanging city how poorly the good theatre was attended, I realised that Dublin is quite a theatrically-minded city and doing quite, doing quite a good job. That's quite a follow-up. Do you think that there's enough money, however, which in the long run is what makes the world go round, even in the arts, even in theatre, perhaps especially in theatre, that there's enough of it coming through to, well, even to playwrights? Um, well, I suppose play playwrights have to depend on the, num the number of times our plays are done. And I can't quibble, I can't quibble about this. I mean, if, 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 if my plays aren't being done continuously, I'll just have to try and see that they are done. Um, the kind of money that I would like to see going into drama is, you know, more money for the Dublin Theatre Festival, more money for the Abbey, more money for struggling managements, this kind of thing. And then the playwrights who happen to do work which is good and is liked will get, you know, the wash of this. Do you think this money should come directly from government or should come from the people through higher seat prices or what? Or both? Well, I think you've got to see, keep the seat prices down if you want the public to come in. I think it must come from the government, I would think preferably through an arts council or through a responsible body of people who understand what drama is, what literature is. The background was the crowd at the opening of the new Lyric Theatre in Belfast last night week when Mary O'Malley put on four Yeats plays. It's a lovely theatre, but afterwards, when I congratulated Mary O'Malley on the fulfilment of, her, of a dream of many, many years, I asked her, was there really, is there really in Belfast an audience for this kind of theatre? Uh, when we started 17 and a half years ago, you had five or six or 10 or 20 people coming to see the sort of play which we are doing now. Uh, now we have an audience which I believe will fill this theatre for two or three weeks. And uh, that's something like 1,800 people, and I think it's possible, 1,800 people in a week, uh, to see a play of Yeats or a play of Chekhov or a modern English play. Yes. I wouldn't be any more ambitious than that, though. I think we'd be very unwise if we were. We might have to change our policy if we build a, big, a larger theatre. I think we've just about catered for the need. Do you think, then, that you can help to create a community of theatre-going in a city which, if I may say so, is 
famous or notorious for the fact that community wise, to use the horrible expression, it's not all that integrated. Uh, we have created an audience, an integrated community, as far as we are concerned. You must remember we work with all classes, creeds and kinds, happily. And these very people, and it's the private individual who has built this theatre, we've collected £80,000. And when a man on an average salary of 2000 a year can give me £500 out of it for a theatre, he must feel very keenly about that theatre. It must mean a lot to him. And it's the man on the street who has built this theatre for us, not industry. Industry has not been all that generous. They're great, greatly overloaded on the, at this particular moment, I think. They have given a certain amount, but they have not by any means contributed the bulk of the money. The man on the street has done this. £80,000, £20,000 came from the Arts Council. The rest was 60000 of which I would say approximately 20000 came from industry and £40,000 from the man on the street. And for the future, the theatre's administrator, Colonel Johnson, had this to say. From the operational side, that is ordinary day-to-day -day running, we are hoping that we will be self-sufficient on the money we take from seats. We're 300-seater, and we're going to charge, on average, 10 shillings a seat. There will be two rows of seats from Monday to Thursday inclusive, which are six shillings. And people who come along and want to make a block booking of 20 seats more on the 10 shilling seats, we'll give them 10%. And we hope that on that, with the ordinary day-to-day -day running, we shall more or less wash our face. And but, may I just go on? Uh, but, of course, we shan't do it. And therefore, we have talked to the Arts Council of Northern Ireland, who are very sympathetic towards us. And I think that within reason, they will, in fact, subsidise us. So you would agree that subsidisation is necessary? Absolutely necessary. I don't think there is a theatre today, uh, let me put it this way, pure, straight theatre, playing just nothing but real theatre, classical theatre, modern plays, uh, which are worth playing, I don't think they will pay their way. You see, you've got to pay your actors equity rates. You've got all the other incidentals of operating a theatre. And these you must meet. And the public, if you're going to make it pay, they've got to come to the theatre and pay a reasonable rate for the seat. And this, I'm afraid, is where you're competing with the cinema and all the other entertainments. Well, it looks as if the one thing everyone in the theatre has agreed upon is the need for government subsidy. Did I say everyone? Actually, it was in Belfast that I came across one dissenter, Hubert Wilmot of the Belfast Arts Theatre. Well, I, I set myself against subsidisation in the, the, the general sense, because it means that a management hasn't got to fight for their audience. And an actor doesn't even have to fight so much for his audience. If they know that everything is provided uh, by the great God government, the great God authority, or wherever the money comes from, and it comes in irrespective of the amount of audience, the theatre takes in, well then I don't think that makes for a healthy theatre or the best of working. But even Hubert Wilmot would agree with occasional special government assistance. Now, we began this programme with the cross-examination of Brendan Smith and the Dublin Theatre Festival. And it's only right to say now that he, on behalf of the Festival Committee, 
has produced a detailed plan for the organisation and subsidisation of the Irish theatre as a whole and submitted it to the government. This is what's involved. Two further companies could be set up uh, in Dublin uh, based on four theatres. Uh, each group, I'm speaking outside the Abbey now, of course, each group would have a large theatre, a large stage and a small stage. That is to say the gate and the gate, as it were, the Olympia and the Ablana. Yes, or, or some other yeah, form of, yeah. of, of uh, coupling. Uh, it would involve, of course, the, also the, the number of marriages between theatre companies and production companies. Um, how effective these marriages would be, I'm not quite sure. Now, broadly speaking, I, I feel that this scheme I'm talking about, the Abbey is, has its own main building and the Peacock. Now, we'll say, let's, we'll call it Group A. Group B would, say, have the Olympia and the Gate, and Group C would have the Gate and the Ablana. Uh, each of the groups outside the Abbey would consist of roughly four, uh, 15 actors, uh, two directors, uh, a designer, a management staff, and uh, one playwright who would be endowed for a year. Uh, now, this would involve about 25 people altogether uh, who would all be engaged on an annual basis. Uh, it's, uh, the, my ideas are rather flexible at the moment as to whether they would uh, occupy the large and the small stage, in each case, uh, jointly, or six months one stage, six months another stage. But I think the question of touring must enter into this too. Uh, in that one of the groups should be committed to touring internally when they're not in Dublin. Mm -hmm. The other group could be committed to uh, touring externally. Uh, when the theatres were vacated by your companies being on tour, how would you see the theatre premises being used? By visiting companies from overseas? Well, the... Uh not necessarily in all cases from people are overseas, but I think uh, we must give the somewhat maligned variety people their head. I think they're entitled to their 10 or 12 weeks a year, in, particularly in the big theatres, and uh, you could encourage possibly new forms of, of review um, in the smaller theatres, like Gate, the Gate and the Ablana, again with Irish companies. Do you see any place at all in this for amateur and semi-professional groups from... Uh, other parts of Ireland? I think the, w the, the way that we should liaise, and I, I think the professional theatre world in Ireland should liaise more positively than it does at the moment, or can at the moment with the amateur movement, is that um, uh, there should be provision for the engagement of professional directors to direct amateur productions in the country. I am not... And I, I mean, I'm saying this, I know uh, even at the moment we have a very talented amateur society in the Olympia, but I am not entirely in favour of amateur companies occupying the main theatres in Dublin. I think there are very, very well equipped and uh, adequate halls for that purpose in Dublin. In general, though, do you think that this whole scheme, and I have to come back in a moment to some of the harder economics of it, uh, does not this scheme leave itself open as being for the benefit of Dublin alone? Yes, well, uh, I must make the point that we have... I won't, we've been rather reduced to that because the, the, the first scheme that I prepared for the Dublin Theatre Festival Council and which was presented to the government 
covered the whole, well, it certainly covered and allowed for a repertory company uh, in Go in um, Cork and another in Limerick. Uh, I think that the important thing to remember here is that most of the professional theatre activity in Ireland is in Dublin at the moment. And I think that we'll have to face the fact that the, the sums of money that we will get at the start will be relatively small. And I think that, therefore, they should be concentrated on Dublin. But uh, it's a matter of what, having a toe on the door. And I think that the, the next obvious step is to help uh, professional theatre um, outside Dublin. What do I hear my friends in Cork and elsewhere saying? Live horse and you'll get grass? Maybe they've a point. And indeed, I'm personally very conscious of the Dublin bias, not so much of Brendan Smith's scheme, but of this very programme. Actually, it's simply because I wasn't very long working on it when I realised that the subject of the problems of the theatre outside Dublin needs a separate inquiry, as do the special problems of the Irish-speaking theatre, which I'd also hoped to deal with. I promise to make amends in both these directions in future programmes. But now, a final word from Brendan Smith on the actual cash, hard cash figures involved in his scheme. Yes, well, we started off by proposing a sum of £120,000 uh, in 1964, again, outside what the Abbey is getting. But, uh, you know, ultimately, and I suppose it's allowing for increased costings over the next few years, I mean, I, I, if a scheme got underway right away, uh, I think, uh, excluding the Abbey again, that some sort of start could be made with a, a figure of something even as low as £75,000. For a first year, but that would have to swell in about five years to, I'd say, three hundred thousand or a little more even. And how how do you see this being administered? Uh, it will have to. Be, well, we've recommended that it would be done through a theatre council, uh, preferably. And there are I mean, we have a number of very dedicated, what am I called, non-theatre people on the Dublin Theatre Festival Council who act in a voluntary capacity, I think they would have to be the people responsible ultimately for the money uh, and the channeling and distribution of it would have to be a number of carefully selected uh, but not act theatrically actively engaged people who, of course, in turn, I would have to work with some sort of uh, advisory panel from people act uh, acting uh, or working in the profession. And there is, I understand, a fair chance that this may happen within the framework of the Arts Council of Ancordia Lina uh, reconstituted. Well, there's provision being made. Uh, it will involve legislation for actually three art, uh, three art, or three councils one for theatre and literature, another for music, and another uh, for the fine arts, uh, working with a, a general arts uh, secretariat. Uh, and uh, sums of money for each council has been, have even been talked about. And I, I understand um, this, this money is to be used within the current financial year. So uh, we are now very actively banging at the door of the Department of Finance. Let's hope the bite is as good as the bark. <laughs>